everybody for joining us again for another edition of the Servant Leader Coaches Bible Study. I'm super excited about this one as I sit here as a North Carolina HBCU alum, uh, alumna of Livingstone College. I know that this servant leader today has made some waves, not only in the basketball lane, but in servant leadership and the HBCU pride that we all admire. Today, we have servant leader Coach Lavelle Moten on with us today. I'm super excited, Coach, because I watch you. And if you are in the game, you know the type of energy and presence you have brought, not only to the game of basketball, but to the game of life. So I just want to thank you for joining us today. And I'm going to go ahead and pass the torch to you so you could just introduce yourself a little bit and we'll get started with this conversation. Oh, wow. Well, thank you guys for having me and inviting me. Um, I'm just as excited to be on. You know, I love podcasts such as this and just being able to have a conversation where I can grow and um, help others grow and evolve just through the foundation of conversation spiritually based. Because at the end of the day, we're not coaches. We're human beings who've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to coach and lead men or women um, in our respected lives. And it's certainly a large responsibility with that. And heavy is the head that wears the crowns oftentimes. And we need more of this because leadership is lonely, right? It's, it's a, it's a long <laughs> Yes. Break, right? And so um, you're, off, you're often isolated on an island by yourself. So it seems because as a leader, you're expected to make decisions, but your decision has to be for the betterment of your particular team or organization or whatever it may be in, in whatever capacity. Oftentimes when you're in the midst of that, you're going to hurt some feelings along the way, right? And what I've learned is that it's okay to hurt feelings along the way as long as your decision is based on the betterment of that team. You know, yeah. uh, obviously I'm the head coach at North Carolina Central University and I've been there for, I think going into my, 12th year, um, I think. And um, <laughs> these numbers, these years start to add up. They roll together. Yeah, they start to <laughs> Lord. I think it's my 12th year. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I always ask kids, look, is this decision about you or is this about the team? Right. And you can instantly put someone in their place. And I, I, I ask myself that. Right. Because a lot of times as individuals, we, you know, the first law of nature is self-preservation. So we think about ourselves. Right. And that's the only person that we think about sometimes. But it's really interesting to be a part of a team because yourself has to be placed last. Right. And that's not common ground for so many people. And I just thrive on on being in those leadership positions. And I, I absolutely love it. And it's, it's made me grow not only as a man, but just a basketball coach as well. That's awesome, Coach. You already sitting here dropping some major nuggets for us because you said one of the things we always talk about, which is why I'm so thankful for this platform, leadership is lonely. And a lot of the times, majority of the time, the individuals who get it are individuals in platforms like this. Right, when right. we're helping all day, we, we get with people who get it. We get it. We get how much it takes out of us to pour out each day. So I think that's amazing. The other portion you said is that in leadership, we have to make decisions that aren't But are you asking yourself, is it a betterment for the group? And I think that is so amazing because in servant leadership, a lot of times that's missed because right. self-seeking is self-motivated, right? But if it's right. helping the betterment, betterment of the group, what is your motive? What is your goal? No doubt about it. And and that's the, that's the main thing. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting. Everyone's not, what I figured out in life is that only the, it's, it's the few and the rare that's capable of leading. We've seen that with leadership of this country in terms of our president, right? Yeah. Just because you're doing it don't mean you're capable of doing it, Come right? On. So you look in, in football and you see a guy that was a great offensive coordinator. But now when he comes a head coach, it just all fails because leadership is not about X's and O's and, and schemes. It's 10% of that, but the 90% of that is just being able to manage personalities and being yeah. able to manage young men and young women, right? And if you don't possess that gift and that quality, then your schemes and your X's and O's, none of that stuff matters and it don't necessarily transfer over. So that's why you see the success rate of some people 
but you also see the failure rate of some people who you think just because they can diagram this play and they've been in this coordinated position for years, but now when they assume a head coach responsibility, it's different. It's different when you move one seat over, right? And you got to be yep. responsible for every <laughs> single person and never take for granted the decisions that you make and how it affects everyone around you every single day. Like everybody that tries to come into the business, they ask me like, man, what's the one thing if you could give me the, some advice? And I'd be like, yo, the amount of decisions you have to make that affects the next person's life on a day-to-day basis is unreal on my level, right? It could just be a kid coming in and saying, coach, man, I ain't doing well in this class. Should I drop this class? You saying yes or no can determine if that kid ever graduates. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's just as simple and small and minute as that. And so... Um, I never take that decision and, and take those things lightly. And I'm so glad that you don't because it, coaching is more than just that sport that we coach. And we say that all the time. And I'm so glad that you highlighted that because so often people forget that fact that you are actually creating individuals who are going to go out and lead you, who are going to be your next doctors and teachers and lawyers, right? And so if we take our jobs lightly, if we don't do them, and much like you just said, if we don't direct that child or that young man or young woman that comes to say, coach, can I drop this class? We are basically dictating their future by what we do. Right. So say that, coach. You know, there's so much humility in you for a person who has, you know, succeeded so much and has gained so much. There's so much humility in you. And I find that as a common thread to our most successful servant leaders. They're humble. Can right. you talk a little bit about your faith journey and how that humbles you in your walk as you keep achieving more and more? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think we all are some total of our life experiences. And once you ascend to a certain level, like it don't change who you are, it just amplifies who you already were, right? So um, if, if you start, if you ascend to a level and now you have money, they say, well, money changed. No, money didn't change. Money just amplified who he already was. If he was a yeah. jerk before he got money, he definitely going to be a jerk when he get, got money. And so my journey, my spiritual journey, you know, began the, the day I actually remember. Um, I had a praying grandmother, God rest her soul. And I like to tell oh, the story because... Uh, like so many of us on this, on this call, so many of us on this call, I'm sure we all had praying grandmothers. Um, and, and she was remarkable. She didn't have um, a, a public school education. I think she dropped out in maybe second or third grade. You know, she was born in 1919, 1920, right? So you know what it was back then. And I remember the first day of like first grade, when I, second grade, when I moved from Boston to Raleigh. And I went to school and they asked me what I wanted to be. That typical question when you grow up, what you want to be. And I said J.J. Evans for good times while everyone else was talking about doctors, lawyers and firemen and police. You know, I wanted to be J.J. Evans like I was immersed with good times. I had the onesie, the good times onesie with J.J. and right on the chest. And, you know, each year I grew, my mom would just take the scissors and cut the feet up and you know, by the time I was like 13, I had a good time onesie that snapped between the legs. I just couldn't let it go because I loved good times. Right? I just wanted to be JJ. And so when I said that in my class, like everybody laughed at me, right? And the teacher was like, y'all don't laugh at Lavelle and da, da, da. And I'm, I'm being laughed at with some kids that really don't look like me. So it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. Long story short, I go home. And I go to my grandmother's house and she asked me how was my day. And I like, it's terrible. I was dropping out of school. I was going to be the first dropout and the youngest dropout in public school history. I won't go back. And she encouraged me to go back. Maybe two months later, there's a Christmas play at her church. She calls me on the phone and she says, she called me Puffy. She said, Puffy, I need you to meet me at the church. Hurry up. I need you to bring a towel and a robe. And whatever she said was gospel to me. So I just got a towel and a robe and I went and, cut across the path and I met at my church at the church and when I got there she's putting the towel and the robe on my head I mean the towel on me and the, and the, the towel on my head and the robe on and she says um something just dawns on me I'm like grandma what, what are we doing like what's this for and she said it's a Christmas play and you're gonna play Joseph and I said who is who is Joseph and so the way she ex- described it to me was like Jesus's father right and I'm sitting there like, I'm cringing. I'm like, yo, like as bad as I am, like my first acting role, I'm going to play Jesus 
father, like if this ain't, you know what I'm saying? So I had like a couple of lines and at the end of the, uh, the place, the preacher gave us all a dollar. Right. And in hindsight, I look back and what she was telling me in that moment was so powerful. It was number one, don't ever let anyone define who you are and shatter your dreams. And she remembered when I came home from that elementary school and told her about these kids laughing at me. And so she gave me my first acting gig. And my first acting gig was also a spiritual base being the father of Jesus. From that point on, she always made me pray with her. When I stayed with her, I had to pray with her. She was deeply religious and I always kept one eye on her and one eye closed and I had to just recite. And she ended every prayer with, please bless my kids, kids. And I would just repeat it. And I never knew at the time that I was really praying for myself. I was her kids, kids, and I didn't even know that. And so as I've grown as a young man, I realized that number one, I had a praying grandmother, right? Who was devoted to me. And I know that God answered some of those prayers and covered me with, I know I'm covered with the blood because I'm supposed to be here, right? And where I'm from, only six kids in 40 years went to college and two was from under my mother's root. You follow what I'm saying? So the statistics, I've, I was always a part of the 1%. When you're always a part of the 1%, you can think you're walking around and there's something special about you and you're gifted, or you can think that God has favor and mercy on you because someone asked him to. And I choose to believe the latter. And so that's been the base of my spiritual journey as I've tried to walk. Um, sometimes I say some things on the sideline I probably shouldn't say, but God ain't <laughs> with me yet. We all do. <laughs> God, I know how it is when you throw that ball away. It's like, good, good, good Lord. And you ask for forgiveness. But I think the beauty and everything is I've always been myself and I've never tried to hide it. And you know, I come from the housing projects, right? And so we've come from the highest nights, we, we have nights, we're misfits, we're outcasts from the day that we were born. And so what I've discovered is you're never going to be perfect. Um, when you come from hell, you're bound to bring some of those demons with you, right? And so I, I received some therapy to, to get rid of some of those demons that I've never completely addressed. I don't want anyone thinking I got it together. But what I found out is that when you're honest and vulnerable, more people gravitate to you. And before I was scared to show my faith as much because, you know, our people just, when you show your faith and you mess up or have a hiccup, they ready to attack because they think you're perfect. Yeah. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want you ever thinking I'm perfect. Like I wrote a book called The Worst Times Are the Best Times. It was 13 chapters of imperfection. So I don't want everyone thinking, I'm, I don't want nobody thinking I got it together. If anything, look at me as the person that don't have it together and look at me as more like a rose that grew from concrete that need God every single day. So every day I wake up out my bed, I'm hitting, I'm hitting God. Look, thank you for allowing me <laughs> to have another opportunity because my grandma always said, it's two things you always get every day. You get a chance and you get a choice, right? And those those are the things. And so by God giving you another opportunity and him allowing you to have breath in your body is still a purpose that you're here, right? And so the last thing I'll share with you is I won a Pepsi hot shot competition when I was 10 years old, right? And I didn't, it's crazy because I didn't mean to win the Pepsi hot shot competition, right? I was crowned the best shooter in the world <laughs> at 10 years old. And it started locally because I went into the boys club and my friends ran up to me and said, man, they having this competition. You need to try this. I was like, nah, that's corny. Right. So I got a bunch of 10 year olds trying to explain to me the rules. I was like, man, that's corny. Ain't nobody doing no Pepsi. Huh? That's whatever. So the, the CEO of Pepsi is there. So he comes over. He says, listen, I heard you good. But if you win, you get two, two liter Pepsi to take home. I said, oh, sign me up. Right. So he signed me up. I won the competition. Right. And there's like, man, you broke some record, man. Forget this record. I need them two, two liter Pepsis so I can take this home. And my mama think I'm a young man coming in this dope providing. <laughs> like It's crazy. So yeah. the following week I had to go shoot in the state championship in Charlotte. And I won that the following week after that, I went to the Southeast regional in Atlanta and I won that. Now I'm headed to DC is this is 1984-85 so I'm going to DC I met Ronald Reagan and as I'm flying in to DC it's the first time I've ever been out the projects and it's because of my talent and my ability where I'm from people never got out the projects right it was just that four block radius that they resided in and 
they live fast and died young. And that's just what it was. So now I'm flying into DC and I'm seeing all of these landmarks, this historic landmarks that I've only seen in history books, you know, and now I'm going to meet President Reagan, but I got to shoot at halftime of the, at the time it was the Bullets versus the Bulls game. And I'm on national television. I end up winning and I'm the crowned the greatest shooter ever <laughs> in, in the world at 10 years old. I come home, I come back to the hood, they throw a, they throw a parade for me, like it's off the chain, right? And so the light bulb goes off for me. And I go to my grandmother and I say, grandma, like, I get it now. I'm gonna take this basketball and I'm gonna get, you, get us out the hood and I'm gonna buy you this big house and this big car. And she told me two things. She said, I want you to understand something. Um, the two most important days of your life is the day that you were born and the day that you figure out why. And she said, when you leave this earth, if people remember you as a basketball player, then you've done a poor job of living. And mm -hmm. those two things are 10 years old that I've never forget. And if anyone had a PhD and communicated something to me, I would never remember it. But my grandmother who didn't even have a formal education told me those things. And that's what I try to carry with me. So I feel like I'm extremely blessed because I know I'm walking in my purpose because the day that I was born and I, I figured out why, I figured out what my purpose is on earth and it's to lead young people and be a servant leader. And if I'm gonna be a servant leader, I have to serve. So that's why I'm always in the community. I'm always doing something with people. And God has let me know it's okay to be demanding, right? It's, please don't get that twisted. That's what's wrong with the world. We ain't been demanding enough. Right. We yeah. compromise with these kids. So it ain't the kids fault. It's the adults and the people in leadership faults that's compromised with them and tried to be their friend. And as any kind of kid would do, they've taken advantage. So I don't want to be too long winded, but that's pretty much yeah, my journey and, and what I'm believing and, you know, what I try to carry over now. So I never, unlike many division one coaches, it's 350 of us. I never wanted to be a division one coach. I turned North Carolina Central down three times when I was a high school coach. I said, I'm not going up there. That's cynical, that's business. I ain't, I ain't got time to get caught up in it. And my principal at the time, who was also my French teacher when I was 14 years old, she put her hands on her face, on my face like this. And as young men, when, the, when a woman puts their hands on your face like this, we know it's something deep and spiritual about to come from it, right? Like, yep. this, <laughs> right? this one right here is just like, uh-oh. And she said, what's this I hear about you turning down North Carolina Central? And I said, I want to be loyal to you because you believed in me when nobody else did. And she said, what you have to offer North Carolina, no, she said, what you have to offer this world is greater than what you can offer Sanderson High School. So you need to go to North Carolina Central and take that job. That's how I ended up at North Carolina Central. And a lot of people don't know that. But prior to that, people see what I do and who I am now People want the finish. They want to. They want to resemble the finished product. They never want to resemble that process of it, right? And I tell people also, like it's that you have to sacrifice something, right? To ultimately get to what God wants you to have, you have to sacrifice something. <laughs> like you have to be willing to give up something, because I think that's God's way of testing you to see if. You really want this? You got to give up something and trust me and walk by faith and not by sight, right? And so when I look back at it, I, I attended North Carolina Central without ever seeing the school, right? I was recruited by, at the time, Central won a D1. They were D2s. I was recruited by, my final three schools came down to Michigan State, NC State, and Wake Forest. And I waited so late because I didn't really understand the recruiting process that Wake Forest signed someone and the coach where I, where I was going was Michigan State and they coach said he's going to retire the following year. So I was kind of stuck. It was June. And North Carolina Central coach at the time, Greg Jackson came and he said, I would love to have you. He said, I ain't never recruit you because I didn't think I would get you, but I would love to have you. And I remember that we're in the projects and I remember him, the look on my mom's face and he pulled out the scholarship paper and I signed it right there because my mom said, I just don't want you in these streets anymore. And so I signed North Carolina with North Carolina Central sight unseen. The next day it's all in the newspaper. Everybody like, yo, you going to Central? Like what? How you do that? And I just remember asking God, like, man, please let me like this school. Like I, it's backwards. I would never advise anyone. I don't know if I'm the only person in the history to do this stuff. Like it was the most foolish move ever, but God had my back and he trusted, you know, I trusted him. And 
It was the best decision I ever made. And then when I came from playing overseas years later, people don't know this story. And this is the craziest one. And this is like, I love telling this story because most people want to coach, but they want, they want to coach at the level that they see you at right now. They don't yeah. want to do this grind. <laughs> like, like it's, and so when I, when I stopped playing overseas, I was tired. And, you know, because when you're getting paid, it's not fun anymore. Right? It's, it's a straight business. I go to the gym, the summer league gym. And one of my mentors say, man, I know you're kind of tired. And I know we talked about it. He said, there's a job availability at a middle school. Right. And they're looking for a head coach. And he said, man, you should go interview. I said, oh, no, man. I, I, okay. He said, man, just call the number. So I just did it for the formality. I go to the school. And lo and behold, the assistant principal at the school is my favorite teacher of all time, my seventh grade teacher. And I talked to her for 20 minutes and she convinced me. To, she said, I think this is a job for you. I said, cool. I said, um, how much does it pay? She said $225 a month. I would be coaching for three months. So I know you don't have your calculators present with you right now. But that's six six hundred and seventy five dollars a year, right? And I was like, "Whoa, that's tough." And she said, um, "Hold on, let me call um, a young man that will probably be on your team." And she said, "He reminds me so much of you." She called this boy down. As soon as he walked in the door, it looked like a twelve year old Lavelle Mo because she knew me when I was twelve, and the kid was broken. He had like a little attitude. You could tell he had been hardened by life circumstances, but he just needed that guidance and polish. So in hindsight, I see she set me up because I won't go say, I was like, yo. And I looked at him. The kid looked like he could be my spitting image. <laughs> like, I'm like, yo, like, this crazy. So she offered me the job for $225 a month, $675 a year, because I would only be the coach for three months and then the season ended. Two days later, I told her I let her know in 48 hours. Two days later, my head coach is now at Delaware State, Greg Jackson, that coached me in, in, in college. He offers me a job to be the assistant coach for $85,000 a year. So now I got the decision. He said, man, let me know, man, because, you know, I got some other people, but I want to give you first rights and refuse. So now I got the decision to make. Do I take the $85,000 job or do I take the $675 job? And I go to my mom and she was like, you ain't got no decision to make. Like, what you thinking about? Like, it, it, <laughs> right. like my mom, my mom just the, the realest that you could ever see, right? So she like, I can't even re repeat what she said, but she was like, you ain't got no decision to make and so on and so forth. Long story short, I pray on it. I told everybody, I let them know. And the next morning I woke up and I chose to be a middle school basketball coach for $675 a year. And what I learned in that moment is really important. And there's a couple of things. The first thing I learned in that moment is what God has for you is for you. And sometimes you have this wise counsel and you have these trusted sources and this quote unquote support system. But when he anoints you to do something in your calling, there's no other force that can pull you away from that. The second thing I learned is that when you're faced with making a major decision in life, if the first question you ask is what is other people going to think about me, then you're not living your life. You're performing for acceptance, right? And I just was so tired of performing for acceptance because when you come from the project, you are have-nots, you are outcasts, so you always want to be included. But what the projects taught me more than anything, and it's prepared me to be a head coach, is that you have to be your own biggest cheerleader because you're on the island by yourself, right? And I, it's okay to be rock bottom because you get a full view while you're down there. I got a full view. I know who is who for me. Yeah, I, I was never twisted. Like none of this was dilated. I, I got a full view down there. And so I made that decision to become a middle school basketball coach. And it's the single one of the single most important decisions I ever made in my life and after two years I was um, promoted to high school and after high school I was promoted to North Carolina Central but the thing is the people that gave me opportunities were people that knew me when I was young these were my former teachers that believed in me 
my high school French teacher who did like this to me and hired me, she said, I'm going to hire you because there's something extremely special about you. When I tried to, when I was a middle school coach, we won three championships and I was like, I'm bored. Uh, I want to go to high school. And I got, there was three high schools that once I submitted my application, they told me, thank you, but no, thank you. It, it was Wakefield, Leesville, and Millbrook High School. I got the letters in here, right? And so she gave me a chance and she said, I'm going to hire you because it was always something special about you since you was 14 years old. And she was my French two teacher. Mind you, I had a 59 in this lady's class. <laughs> I flunked French too. So what what you think is so special about me? Like, come on, man. You know what I'm saying? But I won't tear the class up. I was trying, but I just, French just won't my thing. I took it because I thought my name had some Haitian, you know, the foundation. I was like, yeah, let me go. And, and, that, and the rule of her class was you can't even talk English. So I was like, I'm done. Yeah, like I'm, I'm done. I don't even know what to say. I, I was working on my numbers and they working on paragraphs and all. So I, I just wasn't even ready, but I just sat there and soaked up all the knowledge I could. And it came back and here this lady said, it was something special about you. And I was like, you, you, you sure you talking about me? I had a 59. As a former teacher, you don't forget the people that flunked your class. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you, you, they easy to spot. Right. And half the time you're trying to avoid them when you see them out at Walmart and Target anyway. Oh, this boy, I know he great. <laughs> so I didn't know, man. And so it was all, you know, for me, it was all part of God's plan. Coach, I'm over here tickled, right? Because, and I can attest to so much. I'm telling you right now. Yes, you don't forget. I'm an educator. I don't forget who flunked my class. Spectrum. I remember the ones that were really, really good. And I remember the ones that didn't do too well. You remember that, right? So I'm telling you, there's so much of what you're saying. It's truth, right? You were giving us like the honest to God truth, but you were delivering it in such a way that we laugh because it, it's the truth that we experience every day as coaches. Yeah, yeah no people doubt. People don't get that. Like you said it best when you say everybody wants to coach, but they don't want the grind. They right. Just the finished product, right? And sometimes they don't see that because half the time, much like you said, those choice words, the kids don't want to do what we said, right? And so they don't see the behind the scenes. They don't see that approach. They just see, okay, that that's a coach. This seems easy. Let me do it, right? Because the easiest places to coach are the couch and in the stands, right? right? But one of the the biggest things that you talked about that I can truly relate to is that foundation. When you speak about your grandmother, and it's the same way. They had life education. Yeah. It's the piece. And that's going to take you further than any paper. They had spiritual education. And that's going to take you further than any piece of paper because that's inside of you. And one of the things that I love that you said most is that praying grandmother. And yes, you were right. We all can attest to that because I'll tell you this. My grandmother did so much for me. But the, the reality of that thing was, and the powerful point is, her deathbed prayer was was what saved my life. Wow, wow. Her deathbed prayer was what saved my life. And I tell people that literally when she was actually transitioning and they know that's the that's the crazy part of how close they are to God. They know. So in that preparation for y'all to be okay, you know? And on her deathbed as she was transitioning, she told me, she said, baby girl, I know what the doctor report has said, but I know what God told me. You walk on in at that doctor's appointment. Go ahead now. I'll be here when you get back and you get ready to give me that report. Y'all, I walked into that doctor's office where they couldn't find a single aneurysm on a scan that I was preparing to go get removed. That's what a praying grandmother does. And so as you sat here and talked about yours, I was just sitting here rolling. Oh my goodness. You know, so many gems, coach. That's, so that's crazy. Like that, that, what your, that story just gave me like butterfly. Let, like, let me tell you this. And just, I'm just telling you, man, it's something about praying grandmothers. And I get a lot of credit that I don't deserve because all I do is plagiarize everything my grandma told me. Same. <laughs> you know Same. I get a dead talk my grandma. Like, like, look, That's look, right. Like, I know, this is straight copyright infringement if you ain't never seen it in your life right here. But this is, <laughs> let me tell you this, like, and, and, and you don't, you said something like they had life education. And that's yeah. why I think sometimes higher education is overrated mm -hmm. because nobody's ever asked me the square root of nothing. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Come on, like, coach. Nobody asked me about an obtuse angle and a right angle and, and, and Y equals MX plus B and Y. Like, nobody cared. Like, I ain't really need all that. When I was 10 years old, the year was 1984, and I'm 46 years old. So I don't know how old your, your audience is and members of this phone, but um, I get a call one. Well, my mom get a call one day in our housing project, and the phone is ringing off the chain. Right. And so these are the days where we ain't had no answer machine. We had the phone that stretched all the way from the kitchen all the way throughout the house. The, the cord was 45 feet long. <laughs> I don't even know if they make this is probably the reason they started making cell phones when they saw our, like y'all can't have that. Like this is a jump rope y'all got in here. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the phone is ringing all day. And it, back then it was only two ways that a phone stopped ringing. Either the person that was calling you hung up or you answered the phone. But if not, that phone will ring 95 times in a row, right? And there won't no answer machine or nothing to catch it. So the phone is ringing on this particular day. And I was the designated phone answer in our house because I was the baby. So my mom like, get the phone, tell them I ain't here, right? And so I said, hello, it's her best friend, Faye. Her Faye, her <laughs> from upstairs now, this is crazy. And Faye like, puppy, where your mom at? And I like, she said she's not here. And she's like, I know she there, so go give her the phone. I give my mom the phone. She goes to the phone and Faye is saying, um, she's talking to my mom, but I'm seeing my mom's voice and face change. And she's like, what, huh, girl? Oh no. So my mom is starting to shed a tear and I'm getting worried and I'm like, what's going on? So my mom covers the phone and she said, run, tell your grandma that Marvin Gaye is dead, right? And my grandma lives two blocks over. So I run to my grandma's house and when I bust in her house. I was like, grandma, grandma, she's cooking. And she was like, boy, what's wrong with you? And I was like, mom told me to tell you Marvin Gaye dead. And she's like, what? She turns on the TV and they're doing a special on Marvin. Now we ain't have but three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS, right? And she turned on ABC News and they're doing a special on Marvin Gaye. And as they go to, they do a moment of silence. And then as they go to commercial, they flash. And I'll never forget it. It was Marvin Gaye, April 2nd, 1939 to April 1st, 1984. And she said, see, I want to show you something. She said, that death date, that don't matter. She said, that death, that, she said, that birth date, that don't matter. That death date, that don't matter. The only thing that matters is that little dash in between because that represents legacy and how people will remember him. So whatever you do, make sure that dash is 100% and make sure you that dash is always solid in your life. And that's what I've always lived for. I just always live to make sure my dash is highly respected because at the end of the day, nobody cares and God don't care. Now I'm going to use it um, when it's time for judgment day, but I don't think he cares about me at championships. Now I'm going to throw all my accolades out there to him. Man, right. God, I need all that. Right. <laughs> be like, like, man, you remember I won this coach of the year. I know you don't care, but if you, if you do start caring, I'm going to throw all that out there to him. But I just wanted to make sure my dash is, is super solid. And the only way it can be super solid is to serve people. That's why a lot of people aren't good leaders because they're not willing to serve. You can't, as a leader, you can't ask anybody to do anything that you're not willing to do yourself, right? And so I've done it all. I've, I mean, the rock bottom. I swept the gym in middle school. I drove the buses. I paid for the kids to get something to eat when they ain't have it. And they ain't really, you know what I'm saying? And so... If you're not willing to do that, then it's more difficult for people to buy into what you're ultimately trying to do as well. That's gold. That's gold right there, coach. And and of course, you know, there's so much that you said in that that we can all attest to. It's almost like if, you know, we were actually in your physical presence, I would be, I'm I'm one of people that throw a pet when when I'm <laughs> me. And so that would be me. And you know, coach, I love what you say that you are literally continue to live your life in the way with the teachings that your grandmother gave and that your mother gave. And I see that now that I'm hearing you and that I'm communicating with you, I see that in your baby boy. I see that. I see how you parent him and it makes a lot more sense to me. Can you talk a little bit about just, you know, your purpose as a godly man to be the best family man and godly man that you can be and how you serve your baby boy uh, so that he can get those same teachings, those life lessons that your grandmother gave you? Yeah, it was, to be honest, it was my biggest fear in life, being a father, being a husband, 
And it's not because I wanted to rip and run the streets. It was because I never had example. See, where I was from, you knock on 400 apartment doors, it wasn't a man that was going to come to neither one of them, right? And so what happens when you're a little boy, you love your mother and you love your grandmother to death and they're incredible women, but that's women. They can't teach you how to be a man. And so what happens is you start to pull and gravitate to men and oftentimes the roles that they're in is not respected throughout society, but they have to give you the principles of manhood because you're strongly seeking that. And so I turned to the drug dealers and the pimps and the pushers and the dope boys and the stick up. I didn't necessarily agree with their lifestyle, but I got a lot of great things from them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of great things from them that I apply to this, to this very day, right? Even in my coaching, because I've always been the guy that can get something from everyone. Right. We had a young man. We caught him one time. Right. And he just sat on the corner and he was panhandling. He had his bucket beside him. And if you wanted a quota of the day, then you just go put some money in there. He gave you a great quota of the day. Right? So, and these were some of the best quotes you'll ever have in your life. And it was always those ones to grow on. So my biggest fear was just having that example as I gravitated into adulthood. I was also fearful because I was broken. When you're broken, you're unable to love. Like my father left me when I was four years old, right? And he, I knew this man and then he just walked out and jetted. What happens when your father leave you is you're so insecure as a young man because I felt like if my daddy, if the dude that created me didn't love me enough to stay, then why would Keisha stay? <laughs> or why would Anisha stay? And so I never had the ultimate confidence to even formulate a, a proper relationship in my mind. And I knew that, right? And so I was fortunate because I, I bumped into my wife and when I met her, I was asking God, like, I want to be married, but I can't marry the ones that you, that I just had down here. Now, I can't bring that home to mama. And mama will let you know, like, don't bring that girl back in here. <laughs> you know, like, that's my mama, right? And so I'm like, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I meet my wife and then she starts sending me texts and, and, and threads and scriptures every single day. I say, man, she just feeling me. She just, you know, she gonna do this for a week and then this gonna die out. This woman did that for a year, right? And I was dating other women at the time. And I told her like, I ain't ready for a relationship. And this is how God happens. I had a cramp in my side. And I was asking God, like, I want to find out. I had a cramp in my side. I didn't know what it was, right? You know, black men, you ain't initially going to no doctor, right? And I'm a single man. I'm completely honest with everybody. I ain't ready for no relationship that I die. So I'm having a difficult time deciphering, you know, who I want. Because I came off a tough breakup. And when men come off a breakup, we don't want nothing else to do with no relationship, period. We looking for a reason anyway, right? And so um, I go to the doctor. It's a cramp in my side. He finds nothing. I go back because it's still a cramp, but I'm like, man, it's a cramp. And he's like, man, I can't find anything, yada, yada, yada. So I said, man, I need a colonoscopy because I had Googled it, right? And I was like, if I got a cramp right here, you know, that WebMD, I had killed myself. You done right? diagnosed yourself. If there's something wrong with y'all, I'm just telling you, don't Google your symptoms because you you instantly die. You better hear up and get the ER. And I, here I am, I run into this doctor's office and tell him, man, I need a colonoscopy. He said, what? I said, man, I, he said, where did you hear that from? I said, I had a second opinion, right? And so <laughs> he said, look, man, I, and I, I insisted on getting it. This is crazy. I, I feel stupid saying this. But long story short, I end up, he said, all right, man, if you want to waste your money, get a colonoscopy. Okay. I get a colonoscopy. Every woman that I'm dating at that time, I tell them, as it's time for me to have the surgery or the colonoscopy, only one person came and stayed by my side. And when I woke up after um, being sedated or whatever, it was her. And I knew that was God telling me, this is your wife right here. And my wife, my mom, I took her home to my mom and my mom absolutely loved her. To the day, they so close now that my mom be like, girl, I don't know why you still with him. I told you he ain't, like, it's, it's, you, they, they home girls now. I'm like, y'all just gonna talk about me. But long story short, what I found in that moment is everything that I didn't know, because I have an older, I have a daughter that's 11, Brooke, and I have a son, Bell Jr., that's eight now. And I instantly knew I wanted to marry this woman because I knew I wanted my daughter to be like her. 
she was the first woman I ever dated where I wanted my daughter to be like her. And that let me know that I was choosing people based off because it was good for my image instead of choosing people because it was good for my spirit, right? And this woman was good for my image and my spirit. And obviously we had two kids. And so I just started, decided to seek help in doing this and doing this fatherhood thing because I said, okay, I got it. I'm going to be the father my father never was. And that's how I raised my young man. I'm always there with my daughter. Every Wednesday, we have daddy-daughter date day. I don't care what's happening, right? Nothing comes before daddy-daughter date day. And she knows that. And now, you know, when it started off, it used to go, like, get a Whopper or get a slice of pizza. Now she's getting older. It's getting a little more expensive. So I might have to start canceling something. Like, we're going to get our nail done, feet done everything like she's she's growing now she want to go to the alpha store like yo it's but that's my promise to her because my father left and i never had those emotions as so as far as my son i try to include him in everything that i do because the reality is as leaders we spend more time as coaches with other people's children than we do our own and that's the ultimate gift trip <laughs> boy that's, that's the ultimate guilt trip spending more time trying to better and enhance the life of other people's kids than your own and their parents parents don't appreciate it you know what i'm saying and so at the end of the day when you go home it's like the will smith scene when you get home and you standing in the empty house okay where everybody at because that's how it feels and so you try to buy your way out of guilt and all this and, and i've seen it happen so many times i met guys in this business that said they missed the birth of their of their kids. I was like, what? No, it's no way. Like basketball is not that important. To, I love it, but basketball is what I do. It's not who I am. And I'm never going to have my children looking at me thinking I put something before them. Now, it's a great means of, uh, it's a great vocation. It's a great career. It's a great means of, of a livelihood. But I try to include my son in all that I do. My daughter's a little reserved and she kind of shy. She was the first one. So I all I knew to teach the necessary lessons of life was kind of through sports. And I had this girl dribbling through cones at two and she went to her mom and she like, nah, this, this homie crazy in there. I don't know who you met, but I ain't gonna be dribbling through no cone. A matter of fact, I don't even wanna play basketball. And so I messed up with her. But my son, Val, he leads to our team out on the floor, right? And he's done that over half his life. Like that's all he know. And he leads the team out on the floors like for warm ups, and they love him and like, I wanted him to be just as much a part of this program so he could understand when daddy was gone, daddy was gone for the betterment of you. And I was trying to improve and enhance your life. And so now when I bring you in, I want you to understand that you're just a part of this team and just as big as a part of this team to anybody else. And that inclusion is is, is incredible and, and really imperative for me. That's awesome, Coach, and it's definitely evident uh, just in your walk uh, that you truly, truly place being a family man uh, all, right? As uh, Coach Sutton said last night at Rhode Island, he said, I want to be a hero at home, and I see that every day in what you do. I yeah. Thank you so much. I got a couple more for you before we let you go and handle the rest of your day, right? We all know, and it's crazy, it blew past, but today marks a year that one of the greats left this earth. Uh, and, you know, I just want to know a little bit, because I know that, you know, you're deep within this game, you know, and I love how connections that you have, you bless that on your son. Mm-hmm. Uh, mom used to always say, I want to let y'all know through me that you've been here before. So when things happen, you know, you know, I saw him on there asking Steph how much money he makes. I said, my own heart, how much yeah. money you make? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steph, I got questions. Like, what? Yeah, how, much, how much money you make? <laughs> like, <laughs> I said, that's my guy right there. I am. I you tell him you got to honor where auntie's down here in Tallahassee. But coach, <laughs> talk a little bit about you know just how Kobe and you know impacted the game and 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 you and all of that good stuff and what we can hope to kind of allow his legacy to lead in us as we continue to serve. You know, it's amazing seeing the greatness in individuals before the world get to see it. Um, In 1996, my best friend growing up was Jerry Stackhouse, right? He's now the head coach at Vanderbilt. Um, You know, him and 
I, me and his wife, best friends. I hooked him up with his wife. At, you know, she is a chili that central. But me and him, we were playing AAU together at 12, 13 years old. So he was drafted to the Philadelphia 76ers um, his rookie year. This was 1996. Um, I went and stayed with him during the summer. I was going into my senior year at Central. And at that time, it's him and me, him, Allen Iverson, and we all spent the entire summer every day together, right? Just young men trying to find it and make it. The Sixers would always go scrimmage uh, in Philly and in Jersey, right? Right over the turnpike. And one day, I'm in the gym, and I'm watching them play. The, the coach at the time was John Lucas, um, and he had just been transitioning. but I'm watching everyone play, and then I go out, I get my stuff, and I start playing. And we're playing, and this dude, I know everybody on the floor, but I don't know this dude right here. And I was like, yo, this homie, homie, all right. I was like, where he play overseas? Because I knew he ain't playing the league, right? But I was like, where, where does he play overseas? And they're like, overseas? They're like, yo, man, that boy's 17 years old. I said, man, you, this dude right here? It's like, yeah. I was like, what's his name? It's like Kobe. It's like Kobe who? They said Kobe Bryant. They said, that's Jelly Bean, son. See, I knew his daddy. They said, that's Jelly Bean, son. I was like, oh, that's Jelly Bean, son? And I was like, yo, there's no way this boy's 17 years old. Like, he was holding his own against grown men. Like, every single day. Like, and it was, they when they scored on him or they were killing him, it was because they were grown men. Not because they were better. You know what I'm saying? It, it was kind of like they was big brother in him. But in two years, when he gets some weight and fill out and you just can't punk him and muscle him, you're going to see the difference. And so seeing that dude in that gym, and now every day we get to know each other. He was kind of like introverted and always, you know, uh, uh, you know, in his own world. And I'm, I'm like that, too. I'm, a, I'm an introvert, too. But I always had the ultimate respect for him, right? And to see that guy transcending the world like it was it, it brought tears to my to my eyes to my heart to everywhere i was at my son's basketball game with my homeboy um a guy by the name of derek and another y'all might know rashid wallace right yeah yeah and were really close and she and kobe they had the philly thing and they were really close because see we were all in this crazy all this stuff is deep we were all in philly at that time when they that summer, they connected Kobe and Brandy to go to the prom together, right? This is this how long ago this was. That was really right. yes. You know what I'm saying? So that was Rashid doing all that. Like, we all just hung together every single day, and they connected that. And so last year, I get a call, and I'm getting a text message, and it was like, yo, man, like, call me when you get this ASAP. I'm at my son's game. I step out the door, and it's like, I'm seeing reports. And people starting to talk around the gym, and I'm they like, yo, Kobe, Kobe, Brian, dead. Like, here we go with this sapphire report. Like, y'all kill me with this inquiry stuff. I was like, what? How he died? And I wasn't really worried about it until they said his helicopter crashed. Because we all knew Kobe took his helicopter everywhere that he went. If he did a speaking engagement, he wouldn't even charge. It was just pay for my helicopter, pay for the gas or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And I know that traffic in LA, he always took that. So that kind of scared me. I was like, hold on now, this is, and then I found out the news and then I found out Gigi was with him. And so as a father, you just, like you just, it, it was almost an instant depression, right? And I think the world felt that. Even the people who didn't know him, that, that never met, a, met him a day in, a, in his life, they, it was the shock heard around the world. And we still haven't recovered from that to this day. It's really weird because people are posting tributes and homage. I can't even like the status. I feel weird liking the status of someone who's known. Like, it's, it's just all really weird to me. And I'm like, we know no one's perfect. We know not a soul on this earth is invincible. We know that. But it kind of seemed like Kobe would be invincible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like- I agree. It's almost like Kobe would be like Bill Russell. Just live until he's 145 years old and just be handing out NBA championships. And you know what I'm saying? Like, it just didn't seem like 
like it just didn't seem like that was in the cards for Kobe. And it's been a tough pill to swallow. And I think we should all learn a valuable lesson from it. Um, one of the lessons I try to tell people is like, appreciate people for who they are. Stop the comparisons. We love comparing. Is it Bron, MJ, or Mike, who's the best, Biggie, Jay-Z? Like, like, yo, just appreciate these dudes for who they are while they're here. Because yeah. once you start comparing, you really start disrespecting somebody in some fashion or form. God created all of these dudes different to come teach us a valuable lesson and, and use basketball as a metaphor to teach us those lessons. And Kobe made it real cool for kids to be smart, right? Like he's, he's really made, it wasn't cool for kids to be smart and play basketball. It was like, yo, <laughs> you know, we, we went through that phase, but now he made it cool to branch out and seek and do other things. You know what I'm saying? And so we could go on and on talking about him, but the effect is just, it's profound. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the shock that's still heard around the world. It's, it's, I still get like a, my heart drops even discussing it and talking about it because he was such an amazing guy, right? And if you look at the, the real great ones, the really great ones and the special ones, it's they're loved, they're hated, and then they're loved again, right? And I'm talking from the Muhammad Ali's, right? And, and, and you know, all of those guys, like they, they love you, then they hate you, and then they absolutely love you again. And I just think those are the special ones that God has anointed to, to walk this earth. I couldn't have said that any better. And I think one of the things that you said is, you know, you end up discrediting when you, you try to compare, right? Because God created us, gave each one of us our own avenue. I don't care how aligned they may be, right? But the other portion of that is the reason why people do that love, hate, love sandwich is because they miss the moment. And yeah. then when it's gone and all you have is like, man, I should have, yeah. could have, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We don't appreciate the dash as you discuss. Absolutely. And now once they're gone, it's like, you know, and that's what people in general. So, you know, coach, I, I couldn't have said that any better. And yeah. I see that wall, you know, you're that type of person. My mom calls them fireside chats. I could just sit there and just sit here. I found myself just sitting here listening like, girl, you got to get back up. <laughs> yeah. Because is- I asked this question to all of our servant leaders, it is the the main reason why we're here. And I tell people over and over again, you will hear me say it all the time, that servant leadership, those are action words. We see people put it in a bios, they say that's what they are, you know, but it's an action word. And, and one of which that I see that you, you know, put in action every day. To servant leader, Coach Lavelle Moten, what is servant leadership? To love. Right. If I had to summarize it in one word, it's, it's, it's to love. Um, my mother, and this is crazy, like people don't believe me when I say this, but I can count on one hand. Maybe, maybe two, but I know it's just probably one hand the amount of times my mama has told me she loved me in her lifetime. Right. And that's that's. That's rare. Like we growing up in the Huxtables and the Leave It to Beaver age. It's like the, <laughs> right. your mother and you go to sleep, she tuck you in. This is every night. But my mom was raising two boys in the inception of crack cocaine in the project. She ain't had time for, for all that. You know what I'm saying? And so what it taught me was, but she showed me every single day that she loved me. She ain't had to tell me. I wasn't even seeking her to tell me she loved me. And what it taught me was love is a verb. Right? Love is a verb. Yeah. Come on. Leadership is a verb. Everybody's such a great leader until it's time to lead. And then nobody wants to lead because no one wants to make the tough decisions. Right. And so I would summarize servant leadership as love because if you have a problem with people and you have a problem serving others and you have a problem pushing people to make them better, then it's not for you. And there's a common, someone once asked me, do you want to be loved as a coach? No, they said, do you want to be liked as a coach or do you want to be respected? And I thought about it. And I said, respected. I don't, I don't want to be liked, right? People are fickle. They, and the kid, young people that we're coaching, 
if they knew what was best for them, then they wouldn't need us. You follow what I'm saying? Like, and so it's always going to be fickle. I understand that. And it's always going to be lonely. But as long as you're pushing this particular group for the betterment of that organization and allowing them to see something in themselves that they couldn't even see without you, I think that's what makes it worth it. They're not going to get it. And you got to be able to lead the group. You got to be able to turn your back to the crowd. It's like a, a orchestra. The guy that does this, he ain't looking at the crowd. Like, you better turn your back to this crowd. And I understand that, right? Because the same people that cheered Jesus on when he entered Jerusalem was the same ones who was asking for his crucifixion, who was cheering Come for on. the, the same. You follow what I'm saying? So I ain't caught up on people, right? Um, and if you ain't got thick skin, and you ain't strong-willed, and I don't mean stubborn, just having thick skin where you know, look, I'm doing this because it's best. Harriet Tubman said, I freed hundreds of slaves, and I, I would have freed uh, hundreds more if they would have known they were slaves. Come right? on now. A leadership style, she was a servant leader, but it wasn't a democracy. They said she pulled down the strap. <laughs> if, you, if you said you gonna Let's turn around. Go. Because yeah. what you failed, when you fail to follow, you're now messing me up. There you go. Like you, you're jeopardizing and potentially sabotaging my whole organization. And I can't yeah. do that. Well, I know this gun to your head, but let's keep on moving this people. We're going to this underground railroad and we headed south. Let's go. And that's what it was. And so you have to understand that. Um, and you have to possess, I think it's four things a servant leader must possess. Being fair, being understanding, being supportive and being trustworthy. And the only way I know how to build trust is to be truthful. Truth builds trust. None of my children, well, I don't even want to call them children, none of my young men will ever say, Coach Moton lied to me. None of them. <laughs> right? Now I'm going to look in your face and I'm going to tell you the truth. And it's going to hurt, it's going to sting. Right? But it's going to be the truth. You deal with it how you deal with it. But I never promise a kid, never. I don't care what recruit coming in here. I never promise him he going to start from day one. I tell every kid, and it's probably hurt me sometimes, right? Yo, if you come here and you work hard and best players play, period. And what that's done is created a, a, a trust and a truthful culture because now my team knows, if I bring, if my senior knows, if I bring in some hot shot freshman, Coach Moten ain't promised that kid nothing because he ain't promised us nothing. You follow what I'm saying? So we can always trust it. So yeah. the work ethic is going to dictate who plays. I'm playing the best players that give us an opportunity to win a basketball game. And so when I think of servant leadership, to summarize it in one word, I just think of love and, and, and probably also serving. It's just, it's, it's really that simple because I run my program the same way my grandmother ran her home. That's it. Right? And it's really weird, man, because I get these Fortune 500 companies calling and asking me to come speak and give them motivational talks and so on and so forth. I'm like, yo, y'all don't, like, y'all one of the top corporations in the world. Y'all trying to pay me to come speak and tell you the same thing my grandma told me when I was 10. I said, I feel guilty about that. Now I'm going to cash your check. I, I cash your check, but I'm still going to tell I got it. <laughs> I'm cash. <laughs> But I'm still gonna tell you, like, y'all crazy, right? And I'm going there telling them the same thing my grandmother told me when I was 10 years old. Everything that she told me, I'm telling this Fortune 500 company. Y'all have just made this stuff like complicated. And it's not complicated. When I was hired at Central, they ain't asked me no basketball questions. They said, We know you know basketball like the back of your hand. They said, how how are you going to run a program? Because essentially this program is like a Fortune 500 company. And I said, I'm going to run my program the same way my grandma ran her house. It's just that simple. And I gave them the core beliefs, right? And we don't compromise those. And I'll say this, the last thing as in leadership, and I see so many people get stuck with it, you have to be able to adjust. Um, when Rashid and Jerry, well, Jerry was first, and he played for the Detroit Pistons at the time. And then Rashid played. So I was fortunate because I had two friends that played with the Pistons. And when I went up to their games, I ain't really want to see the games. I just wanted to go to Motown, right? And see the exhibit because I was a huge Motown fan. I'm a, I'm a big music guy. I'm talking one day to Barry Gordy, right? The founder of Motown. And 
what he told me, it blew my mind. And I'll share this story with you. I don't even share this story with people, right? I just kind of keep it, but it's, it's best that I share it. He said, man, um, it ain't no difference between what you do and what I do. I said, Mr. Gordon, like, let, let's stop playing. Like, no disrespect, man. I want a couple of basketball games. They're going to be playing my girl for 400 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, that Motown soundtrack is something that's – he said, yeah, yeah. He said, but um, when I found the Motown, the template and the blueprint I used was for a motor company, right? He said, but what I'm telling you is it's nothing – it's no difference in what you do in terms of leadership and what I did. Right. He said, number one, as your coaches, you got to keep people that's really close to you. He said, I had my aunt, my mother, my sister. Those were the people. Those that was the head and the execs at my record label. I had to people keep people really close to me. He said, but I, the one thing I want you to understand is this. He said in, in, in the in the 50s, um, there was a guy by the name of Stevlin Morris that came to me. He said he was 13 years old and he could play 13 instruments and. I loved how he played instruments, but he wanted to sing. He said his mom was like a headache, a pain, because she wanted him to have tutors and all these people following him on the road. And he said, man, I invested so much into this kid and I won't get no return on my investment. And he said, finally, one night I put him on the stage at the Apollo. And he does the song and this crowd goes wild. And he said, so now, finally, after three or four years of investing in him and not getting a return on my investment, we throw him in the studio and get him to make an album. Right. He said, so years later, the kid comes back in my office and he sues me for two point five million dollars. He said it broke my heart. And I'm lost now. I'm like, Stevlin Moore. I like, I thought I knew everybody at Motown, but evidently I'm on a fan. And I was like, Yeah, you got got if you got got by somebody named Stevlin Morris. And I said, I ain't even I don't even know who that is. He's like, Oh, you know who Stevlin Morris is. He said, You know him as Stevie Wonder. But I, I like, oh, that was real. Wow. Right? And so he said, he came back in my office years later and sued me for $2.5 million in the 60s, right? <laughs> he said, man, this was a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money now, he said, but he wanted complete ownership and stuff like that. And he like, yo, I invested in you with nobody. Then nothing like you played, thir- it won't popular to invest into a 13-year-old blind kid, da, 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 da. And like it went on. Years later, I guess he was like, yo, I don't want to deal with kids no more. And I wouldn't blame him. He said, because they turn your back, they they not loyal, whatever, whatever. And he said, years later, a lady by the name of Suzanne DePass came and knocked on his door and was like, there's some five guys from Gary, Indiana, five little kids over here that you need to come see. He's like, man, y'all better not bring me no more, no more kids. I told y'all to get these kids out, yada, yada, yada. He said he's going crazy. She said, Barry Gordy, if you don't get your ASS over here and see these kids, he said that's the only reason he got out of his seat because his assistant talked to him like that. And so she must have been convicted. He said he goes next door. He see these five kids from Gary, Indiana. And he said he see one of them doing like a little James Brown routine. He immediately runs back into his office, get a camera and start recording the kid. Right. And then recording, recording all the brothers. He said. Those guys became the Jackson five and the little one was Michael Jackson. The moral of the story was, if I would have allowed the pain to fester from Stevie Wonder and not adjust, I would have never found the greatest entertainer of all time. So leadership is all about adjusting because each generation, each, each year, this is a different young person or old person that you are potentially managing. And that's the one thing I've learned in leadership more than anything. I've had to adjust, right? And so now I'm still demanding, but I let music play while they stretching and I let them listen to little baby and little yachty and we sing and we dance for five minutes until they hamstrings get loose. And they kind of appreciate that, right? And then we get at it my way, right? And so it's just the adjustment phase because if you're not adjusting, then you got, it's, you're gonna get canceled out. And so that's the story that I would share with you guys as leaders you can't lead the way you led years ago. And even as parents, like, and I told my wife, like, but it's a, it's a slippery slope because I told my wife, I said, we're so, we're so used, we're trying to give these kids something that we didn't have, that you can't forget to give them what you do have. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? And so that's, yeah. that's the happy medium that you have to find. And so, um, that's what I wanted to share with you, so. 
Coach, you got my mic. You got I mean, my things just on fire. They just about to blow up. Lord, when I send you an invoice, just, just let me know. Because Lord of mercy, I just appreciate you, Coach. I really do because your ability to speak life. When you know, when you came back in, when you went off, when the internet took you off and you came back in, I said, the greatest coaches are transparent. They don't just want people to see the glory. They are not holding that story close to their vest. They give it away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you for that. That's how you touch. And I appreciate you because you've shown an incredible humility that a lot of people can't show to reach out and say, listen, I have a podcast and I would love for you to be on it, right? And that's a lot of, a lot of times people can't do that. You'll be amazed, right? And so that's my thing is people, you're only going to learn from people. So I love sitting in these things. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't, because it's constantly learning. And the right. moment you're through learning, then you're through. You know what I'm saying? So I'm learning just as much from you guys as, as hopefully you are as me. So I, I thank you for inviting me on and having me today. Absolutely, Coach. We appreciate you. Before we get out, if you guys could just bow your heads when I say a quick prayer, and especially for you coaching your endeavors. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you so much, Lord God, and we never, ever, ever want to give a petition, Lord God. We want to praise you and thank you, even if we don't ask for a single thing because you've been just that good, Lord God. We thank you for convening and bringing us all together, Lord God. Even in the midst of this pandemic where we we thought that things were going left and we thought things were hard, you had a purpose and you had a plan, Lord God. So thank you for that purpose. We thank you for that plan. I ask that you just touch Coach Moten, Lord God. Help him as he continues to lead and guide your next servant leaders, Lord God. Touch his family, Lord God. Touch his walk, Lord God. Give him the strength and the tenacity that he needs, Lord God, to continue to do your will, Lord God, and continue to serve and to touch and to teach, Lord God. I ask that you just bless all of us servant leaders, Lord God. Help us to decrease as you increase in our lives, Lord God, and help us to continue to be a beacon of light, Lord God, so that those that don't know you can find you. In your son Jesus' name, we will always pray. Amen. Amen. Coach, thank you. You're now part of the Servant Leadership family. I want you to know if there's anything we could ever do for you. All you got to do is reach out. Man, when a woman pray for you, that means they love you. So thank you so much. I appreciate Always. it. Thank you, everyone else, for, you know, taking the time to log on today. And I, I definitely appreciate you, all of you guys. God bless everyone. Likewise, Coach. Be easy. Bye.